Our scripture reading uh, for today is out of Acts chapter 7, verses 54 through 60. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This is the word of the Lord. It is uh, it's good to be here today. My name is Joe Johnson, if you weren't in the announcements, and I'm the RUF campus minister at Mississippi State. Uh, did not attend that university. I went to the University of South Carolina, and we're not a threat to you. So I'm a friend here. <laughs> So thank you uh, for that. Um, I love coming here uh, for a, a number of different reasons, but um, I have a lot of friends here, and y'all seem to be collecting my friends as a church and making me jealous. I don't live in Oxford. I've known Les for a long time, a mentor of mine that I still call often and ask ministry questions, and uh, Brian, uh, your new associate pastor, who was a predecessor of mine at Mississippi State that I call with questions, and now you're bringing another friend here and Austin Brash and his ministry at Ole Miss, which I'm really excited about and know y'all will care for him as he cares for your students. Um, and I love seeing all those. But I do have to say, Austin is a Bama fan. So uh, I expect some kind of sanctification to happen while he's here. If you can fix that, uh, good luck. I'll be praying for that. Uh, but love, uh, love being here, and especially my summers where I'm freed up to kind of come and, um, and preach around. This is one of my favorite churches to do that in. So thanks for having me, and I'd love to meet you. And if you know any students at Mississippi State who were there already or going there in the fall, please, please, please um, meet me after and give me their names. I would love to connect with them this fall. Um, but if you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to be in that Acts 7 passage that was just read that actually is one of my favorite passages in Scripture, uh, which may be a little strange because it is about a man dying. Uh, but we are, uh, as Christians, putting all of our hope in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And Stephen and Christ's death actually mirror each other in some ways. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But one of the reasons why I've loved this text for so long uh, is that in these last moments of Stephen's life and in his death, we get a clear picture of what the good life is as a Christian. That in other words, the way this man dies teaches us how to live. Because in the last moments of Stephen's life, he shows us what it looks like to be enamored by the beauty of Jesus. Uh, Stephen dies looking at Christ. Uh, Stephen dies, actually the text says, goes to sleep, looking at the face of Jesus, looking proudly at him. He is enamored with Christ's beauty. And the question that I wanna ask this morning is do we find Jesus beautiful too? Do we find Christ beautiful? Uh, Anne Lamont, in a book, her book, Bird by Bird, tells a story that you may have heard before of a family uh, of two, we presume, uh, adopted children. 
an older child, older boy, seven, eight years old, and a younger sister. And the younger sister was diagnosed with some form of leukemia. And there was a treatment they could do to maybe extend her life that would involve a blood transfusion. So uh, the search was on for a match who could uh, donate blood. And they found that her brother was actually the match, the only match in the family. And so they set the little boy down, seven, eight years old, and asked him a question. Would you be willing to give blood for your sister to live longer? And this is one of those questions that parents ask where you're going to make them do it anyways, but you are presenting an opportunity for character. And the little boy hears the question, thinks about it for a second, and says, can I think about it for a night and get back to you in the morning? Which as a dad, if I was in that moment, I would say, no, you cannot think about it. You were going to do this. But the parents respected him and said, we'll talk in the morning. Boy wakes up in the morning and says, I'll do it. And so the day was set. He was in the hospital. He was in the hospital bed. They were taking blood from his arm and he closes his eyes and takes a deep breath. And the nurse that was there looks at him thinking maybe he's scared of needles. This is overwhelming for such a young boy. Asks the question, are you okay? And the boy opens his eyes with tears in them and asks, could you tell me when I'm about to die? Uh, the boy misunderstood what he was being asked to do. He didn't think he was being asked for some of his blood. He thought he was being asked for all of his blood. And so go back to that night that he thought about it. All night in his room, he was trying to answer the question, will I give my life for my sister? And at some point in that night, he said yes. Because at some point in that night, he determined that she was worth it. That's an amazing story of an amazing boy. And I open with that because sometimes we can read passages like this and see a man who gives an amazing speech, Stephen, and then dies for Jesus and then move on with the story. We can sometimes think that's just what Bible people do. They give good speeches, they die for Jesus, the church goes on. But for this morning, I just want us to stop for a moment and realize how amazing of a picture this is. This isn't just a picture of a hero that we should emulate, though it is that. It's not just someone that we uh, are to celebrate in the church because there's a huge moment for the church, though it was that too. This is showing us how beautiful Jesus is in the eyes of his people. And that Stephen truly began to live the good life of a Christian, the flourishing life of the Christian, the free life of a Christian, when he was overwhelmed with the beauty of Jesus. And the question I want to ask and answer this morning is what did Stephen see that we need to see? What part of the beauty of Christ did Stephen see that we need to see? And I'm going to say three things. That Stephen saw the beauty of Christ's location, the beauty of Christ's love, and the beauty of Christ's plan. The beauty of Christ's location, love, and plan. I tried to do three L's, couldn't do it. Two out of three is not bad. So first... Stephen saw that we need to see the beauty of Christ's location. A following Jesus will take us to places that we did not ask to go, nor did we want to go. And that's certainly the case for our man Stephen this morning. I am sort of plopping us into the book of Acts. Let me provide some context. The church is growing by leaps and bounds. And what we find is that in Acts chapter 6, the apostles are overworked. There are too many people, there are too many things to do, too many people to take care of, both physically and spiritually. And so they make a decision, carried on by the Holy Spirit to create a second office of leadership in the church, what we would call a deacon. And so certain men were set aside to do works of mercy, mercy ministry. 
that the apostles could focus on teaching, and that these men would lead the church in taking care of orphans and widows. And one of the men who were selected to do this, ordained by the church to do this work, was a man named Stephen, who twice, the text says, was full of the Holy Spirit. So Luke is kind of giving us clues that something's about to happen to Stephen, that, that he's going to be uniquely used coming up, so pay attention. And he really was uniquely used. His ministry goes forth, says he did many mighty acts for God. We don't really know what that means or what that looks like. But we know that Stephen's ministry did well enough for him to garner some unwanted attention of a certain synagogue who did not like what Stephen was doing, did not like what Stephen was saying, and so bring him in in front of a council of 23 to 71 rabbis under trumped up charges of heresy that say, say Stephen was preaching against the Old Testament, the law, David, the temple. And so they bring this man in in front of all of these important people and ask his response. What do you say to these things? And Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, starts talking. And I cannot unpack all of chapter seven, which is his speech, but I urge you to go read it later today. Where Stephen, we have no idea what his background is or, or, or how learned he is, but all of a sudden he goes through the entire Old Testament showing again and again and again that God kept sending prophets, men to tell you about him and you kept ignoring them. You kept killing them. And this is how he ends his speech. This is verse 51, a little bit before our text. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. That's a tough way to end a sermon. And I'm certainly not going to end my sermon like that this morning. Don't worry about that. That's how I end my RUF sermons, though, every week. Stephen says those words into the eyes of these men who are incredibly powerful. And he finds himself in the world of trouble that is verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Uh, the Greek behind this is actually a little stronger. It's almost as if their bodies are falling apart in anger at Stephen. And every time I look at a text like this, the questions that pop into my mind that I want to ask the people that were there, like I can't wait to find Stephen in the new heavens, new earth and ask him a few questions. And one of the first questions that I would ask him is, what were you thinking between verses 54 and 55? Like what were you thinking between the moments that these powerful men were now circling you looking for rocks to throw and before you saw Jesus, what was going through your mind? Because if he's anything like me, what would be going through his mind is, I did not ask for this. I should not be the one in this position. This should be the apostles. They should be giving theological answers to councils. They should be the ones who were facing martyrdom. I'm a deacon. I just wanted to help orphans and widows. Who's going to get mad at the guy that wants to help orphans and widows? I did not ask for this. And I probably would also think, why am I alone right now? Where's the church? Where are the other people? Why is it me right now? Have you ever asked God those kind of questions? I didn't ask for this difficult marriage. I didn't ask for that diagnosis. I didn't ask for those problems. This is not the way I thought my life was going to turn out. Those are good prayers. And I wonder if Stephen was thinking them. But no matter what he was thinking, we see the grace and the goodness of Jesus in verse 55 that Stephen looks up and see heaven torn open. I don't know what that looks like. I would love to know. And he sees the glory of God. What does that look like? And then he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. 
And if that sounds strange to you, it kind of should. Because everywhere else in Scripture where Jesus is at the right hand of God, he's sitting. And even the Apostles' Creed we read a few minutes ago, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. But here he's standing. That in this moment, what Stephen is seeing is that though he's being declared guilty in this earth, he's looking at his innocence. Though he's being declared unrighteous by this Sanhedrin council, he's looking at the one who has given him his righteousness. But mostly what I think Stephen's feeling in this moment is he realizes that he's not alone. Jesus is standing with him. Standing, getting ready to say the words, well done, good and faithful servant, standing proudly over his servant, watching almost as if he's participating in this moment. And it's like, the, it's a, not a great illustration, but, but it's like Saturday night, Vault Hemingway Stadium, Lane Kiffin's offense going up and down the field. The ball soars through the air. You see an open receiver. What do we all do? We stand. We stand together, right? We stand in solidarity. We stand. Are we going to celebrate in this moment? We're going to lose our minds in this moment. And I do think I should get credit that I used Ole Miss and not Mississippi State in that illustration. Jesus stands up with Stephen. That he's not alone. That Jesus is there, has been there the whole time. And after this moment, Stephen doesn't talk to his enemies. He doesn't do anything but look and be in awe with the one who was with him, his king at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. The beauty of Christ's location. He's there. And if I was to invite Stephen, if I could invite Stephen here to tell us this story, tell us in your own words what happened this day, I really think this is how Stephen would answer I don't remember what they were mad about. I don't even remember what I said. But you wouldn't believe it. I look up and heaven's open and I see God in his glory and I see Jesus at his right hand. I see Jesus' resurrected body with the scars still there. I see him and he's looking at me and he's smiling at me and he's proud of me and he's standing next to the Father and he's talking to the Father about me, interceding for his church, bringing my needs to the Father's attention that we have to remember in this moment what Stephen saw is that Christ's work is not done at the resurrection, it's not done at the ascension, but right now he's at the right hand of the Father speaking to the Father about us. This is John Frame. He says this, what is Christ doing right now? He is right now interceding at the Father's right hand. Even now he is thinking of us and bringing our needs to the Father's attention. I know this sentence doesn't this isn't grammatically correct, but go with me. Where do you need to hear in your life that Jesus is there? Where in your life do you need to believe more that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father for you? That you're not alone. United to him by his spirit, that Jesus is standing with his people, working in his people, bringing about a great work within his people. Where do you need to hear that he's there? That in a difficult marriage, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father talking and thinking about you. That in your fight against sin, it is not just you versus sin one on one, but he is working in you and speaking to the Father about you. Where do we need to hear that Jesus is there? It is a beautiful place where Jesus looks proudly upon his people. That's what Stephen saw. But that's not the only thing he saw. Because he also saw the beauty of Christ's love. And particularly, Love for enemies. Because can we say that Stephen made a few enemies here? At least between 23 and 71, people who hate Stephen. 
And what he does right after he sees Jesus, he begins to tell them about it. This is verse 56. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and rushed together at them. A situation that goes from bad to worse. These men are now falling apart. They're acting like my three-year-old who heard something that, that he doesn't want to hear. These are learned men, respectable men. Why are they losing their minds? Because Stephen just said something incredibly offensive. He actually preached the gospel to them. Because to say that Jesus is at the right hand of God means that Jesus is God. It means that it wasn't just a death that ended Jesus' ministry, but it was a sacrificial atonement for his people's sins. It means that Jesus did not stay in the tomb, but got out three days later. It means that Jesus ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand, enthroned as king. And it goes against almost everything these men believe about their own righteousness. What we're actually seeing is how the gospel really is beautifully offensive. Because to preach the gospel is to say that Jesus is king, meaning we're not. To preach the gospel means that we have a sin problem, only Jesus can take care of it, meaning we're sinners and there's nothing we can do on our own. The gospel really is beautifully offensive. And if Stephen had enemies, we probably will too. That if we follow Jesus long enough in this world, we will have enemies. And if you know me and my personality, I'm, I'm a peacemaker, I'm a peacekeeper. Um, I, I don't really ruffle feathers. I, I'm pretty nice to everyone. I can get along. In every place I've ever done ministry, there has been someone who hated me. And I hope it's not my personality. I can deal with that. But I think they hated me because of Jesus. We will have enemies. But there's two wrong ways to react to that. There's two wrong responses to the idea that we as Christ's people will have enemies. And the first wrong response is to be a little too excited about it is to be a little too excited about making everyone around us angry, is to be a little too excited about offending people with the gospel. Sanctification by conflict, let me make everyone hate me today, and if everyone hates me, then I know I'm being faithful to the truth. I just don't see that's what Stephen's doing. I see a man who really wants to quietly do ministry for the church and love people. And then he finds himself in a world of trouble and gives a bold explanation of truth. But he didn't go looking for a fight. So that's one wrong reaction to it, to be a little too excited. But the second wrong reaction to it is to avoid it at all costs. It's to never want to offend someone, to never make anything awkward because we're going to talk about Jesus. To never be willing to have any sort of social cost to following him. But we know the answer to that objection because if, if we as Christians have the greatest news the world's ever known, if we know about the love and the grace of Jesus, how can we not share that with everyone around us, even if it might put us in some tight spots? But what Christ calls us to is to engage with our enemies with both truth and love. And what does that look like? Well, Stephen actually shows us. Because as his enemies were killing him, what does he do? He begins to pray. Doesn't speak to these people anymore. He only talks to Jesus. And he prays for their forgiveness. And how does he do that? Well, he says two things, right? Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he prays for their forgiveness. And those words should sound pretty familiar because those are two of the seven last sayings of Jesus on the cross. And another question I would ask Stephen is, how did he know to say these things? How did he know? I mean, 
It obviously hasn't been written down yet. There's no evidence that Stephen was at the cross. Maybe it was just orally transmitted, right? That, that, that this is what Jesus said. He memorized those words, but no matter what, he said them. And I think what it shows us is this, that in the last moments of Stephen's life, as he's looking at the beauty of Jesus, totally enamored with it, he begins to start sounding like Jesus. Because isn't that what sanctification is? Growing in holiness, growing as a Christian to look more like Jesus. And Stephen's showing that that comes from looking at the beauty of him. They tell us young preachers, be careful listening to one preacher's podcast over and over and over again, because you might accidentally begin to sound like him. And so if I listen to Les Newsom too long, I might accidentally start sounding like Les Newsom, and I can't do that. But actually with Jesus, for us, it's the opposite of that advice. That the more we look at him, the more we're in awe of him, the more we give ourselves over to his word, what the spirit does in our hearts is make us look and sound more like Jesus to the world around us. Because Stephen's able to do this. He's able to pray for people he should hate. He's able to do that because he's looking for the, at the one who at the right time died for his people while they were still his enemies. Stephen actually reflects the love of Christ in a real, real situation. That's what we're called to do. Are we enamored with the beauty of Christ to actually show his love to the world, even to our enemies? Who are those people for us? The people that are difficult to love, the people that actually conjure up hate within our hearts, can we actually see that if Jesus loves someone like me, could I also love them? And I actually think it shows us you can't pray for someone too long without loving them, actually, without love growing in your heart for that person. The beauty of Christ's love. But then lastly, the beauty of Christ's plan. Stephen sees the beauty of Christ's plan. I don't want to speak too irreverently here about this death, but I also can't help but think this is not what Stephen would have picked for his life. This is not the way Stephen saw this ending. I mean, how long does his ministry last? A couple of days, a couple of weeks maybe? He makes his entrance in Acts chapter six and, he, and he's dead by Acts chapter seven. I can't imagine this is what he pictured, becoming a deacon of the church and going out and serving orphans and widows, that he would die like this in this horribly painful way. That maybe he wanted to be a church planner, maybe he wanted to be a husband or father, maybe he was a husband and father and we just don't have that information. But I can't imagine this was Stephen's plan for his life. And actually I would wonder what someone outside the church who was present that day and watched this, I wonder what they would have thought. I wonder if they would have thought something like, man, it's not going well for the church. That guy didn't last very long. It doesn't look like God's on their side. Or I wonder if the leaders of the church, when they heard about this, mourned not just the death of a friend, but also the loss of one of their rising leaders. That from the outside perspective, this just looks like an utter failure. But we're not looking at it from the outside perspective because we know that actually Christ's plan here is way more beautiful than anything we could have written. That his plan for Stephen's life was for him to die that day, but his plan was also to answer the prayer Stephen prayed that day for the forgiveness of the ones that are doing it. There was a man there named Saul who witnesses laid down their garments head. That's almost like signing a death certificate. And he approved that execution and actually went on a rampage against the church in the next chapter. But that Jesus was used that man to extend his church to the ends of the known world, 
It is that man that was there that day that saw Stephen die, that would also encounter the same Jesus that Stephen saw, but ironically, when he encounters Jesus, he goes blind, that Jesus would claim as his own and actually use to show that the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church, that Stephen's death cannot hinder Christ's mission, and that he'll do one of the most beautiful things he could do. He took his greatest enemy and made him the greatest missionary for his name. Because there was something about the death of Stephen that Paul could not get out of his mind. In Acts chapter 22, he tells his testimony and he actually mentions Stephen by name. I'm sure Paul, Saul killed a lot of people, saw a lot of people die, but he thought about Stephen. And I heard Sinclair Ferguson once say that he wanders on the road to Damascus was Saul thinking about Stephen. Who dies like this? Who was he talking to? What did he see? And what did that death look like that is described in Acts by Luke as that he fell asleep? I think Stephen died with a smile on his face and Saul didn't know what to do with that. But this wasn't Stephen's plan, it was Christ's plan. And it was costly and it was hard and it was beautiful. And it causes us to ask the question, what if Christ's plan for my life is better than my plan for my life? What if Christ's plan for my ministry is better than anything I could have had, even though it might not look the way I want it to look? What if his plan is better? What if Christ's plan for my children and their lives is better than my dreams for them? What if Christ's plan, even though it might involve suffering and trials, and we're not gonna call bad things good, but what if his plan is better? That when we see him on judgment day, we won't be able to look in his eyes and say that was unfair. We'll just be enamored with his beauty and how he brought us through and brought us to the end. Thomas Boston, in his book, The Puritan, um, A Crook in the Lot, says this. Standing on the shores of heaven and looking back to what we have passed through, Christians will be made to say, he hath made all things well. Those things that are bitter to the Christian in passing through are very sweet in reflection of them. This was bitter for Stephen to pass through. This was one of the darkest moments of his life. But enamored with the beauty of Jesus, he rested in the plan of the king. Do we find Jesus beautiful even when life doesn't go the way we think it's gonna go? Even in the midst of tears, can we see his beauty, that he's there with us? that he's sadder over our sin and the sins and the pain of this world than we are. And that he looks proudly upon his church, standing in solidarity with his people. Do we find Jesus beautiful? And does that transform the world around us? That Oxford, Mississippi doesn't just look at Christ's prayers and say, man, they're great people. But they might say something like this, man, they are as messed up as anybody else, but they love Jesus. They talk about him all the time. They repent in his name. When we are enamored with the beauty of Christ, we'll begin to show that beauty to the rest of the world. And part of the sign of maturity as Christians is to find Jesus more beautiful than us, to more beautiful than, more beautiful than our sins, the more beautiful in the life of our dreams. Because one day, someday, we'll be in the presence of Jesus where I don't have to ask Stephen the question, what did that look like? I just get to see him with my own eyes with unveiled face and he will be worth it. Let me pray. Father in heaven, 
uh, we're so tempted to find other things more beautiful than you. At Jesus, I'm tempted to find sin more beautiful. I'm tempted to find myself and acclaim and success and riches more beautiful than you. But Lord, I pray that you attune my heart to what it really wants and what it really needs is you. Jesus, help us to find you greater, more glorious. Help us to find rest in you. And help us more and more be able to show the world your beauty, your splendor, your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.